Hello, my name is Roger Henderson. I'm a GP and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. Now, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups. And you can follow me there too at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episode show notes and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. Now, in this episode, I'll be discussing epicondylitis. The synonyms here, we all know, are lateral epicondylitis, tennis elbow, and medial epicondylitis, golfer's elbow. But essentially, they're both considered to be overload tendon injuries. And in my experience, these often occur after minor or unrecognized trauma um, to the extensor proximal insertion, the tennis elbow, or the flexor insertion, golfer's elbow, to the muscles of the forearm. Now, both tennis elbow and golfer's elbow do seem to have a greater prevalence in the population than most people think with up to 3% of the population being affected. The peak incidence is in middle age, by which I mean between about 35 and 55, with men and women being equally affected. Now, tennis elbow and golfer's elbow account for around two-thirds of the persistent elbow pain in patients we see in primary care. And tennis elbow is far more common. It's six to seven times more common than golfer's elbow. Obviously, it can be seen at any age depending on certain activities, but middle age is the most common. Now, the etiology essentially is repetitive overuse in the elbow. And if you get to the anatomy, we're looking at repetitive strain of the extensor carpa radialis brevis and the common extensor tendon. And repeated overuse of these can cause micro-tears, what we then think causes a degenerative process. Now, we used to think that epicondylitis was an inflammatory condition, as its name suggests. But when you analyse inflammatory cells in that area, there is an actual lack of them. And so specialists are now increasingly thinking that the word epicondylitis, implying inflammation may be a misnomer. And we're now talking about tennis elbow or golfer's elbow, which is much simpler, or even epicondylagia. Uh, But tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, in my view, are easier to remember. Now, the causes are obvious. Tennis elbow, surprisingly, although it used to cause significant numbers of tennis elbow in patients, we're now finding causes less because of the lighter rackets. And then now, tennis is not the cause in the majority of people with tennis elbow. Far more common are jobs involving repetitive heavy lifting, or particularly the use of heavy tools. Things like heavy screwdrivers and power tools. And if these are being used in awkward positions, then that makes it more likely that a tennis elbow may occur.
If you're used to using those tools, you've got a slightly less chance of developing a tennis elbow than if you're doing a project for the first time and are not used to using them. And we think that a similar process is involved in golfer's elbow. Now a tennis elbow in a right-handed person is because of the action of using a racket in a right-handed way. Golfer's elbow again refers to a right-handed golfer. The presentation in tennis elbow, which is the one I'm going to be talking about most today, is typically a gradual onset, usually in the dominant arm, although about 20% of cases can be in the other arm. Some cases can be bilateral, but in my experience, it's far more common to have a unilateral tennis elbow. And what you get is a tender spot, typically just below the lateral epicondyle on the outside of the elbow. And the pain initially is mild, does not interfere with function, but then worsens over time. People often come and say, I can no longer open a jar or use a particular type of movement. And you can get to the point that I've seen where people really do find it difficult to even pick up a toothbrush. However, it's important to point out that elbow movements in tennis elbow are normal. And if you have someone who presents to you and you think it is tennis elbow, but they've got a restricted range of elbow movements, then I would seriously suggest you consider alternative diagnoses. It would be unusual for someone with tennis elbow to be presenting with limited mobility in their elbow. One of the signs I always try and test for is Tinnell's sign. So by which I mean just tap very lightly on the medial elbow over the ulnar nerve. And if it's positive, then that will generate paresthesia without pain. A negative sign helps to exclude things like a cubital tunnel or other neurological conditions. If you really want to go the whole hog, then try Mill's test. So in this, we straighten the patient's arm, we palpate the lateral epicondyle, and then we flex the wrist and you pronate the patient's forearm. A positive Mills test is if that is painful. Cousin's test, which is not often done but can be helpful, is where you put the elbow in 90 degrees of flexion and you then ask the patient to make a fist and you deviate the wrist radially with their forearm pronated and you resist extension at the wrist. If you then get pain in the lateral epicondyle, that's a positive result. Now with golfer's elbow, you get pain and tenderness over the medial epicondyle radiating down into, for, into the forearm, and pain is typically aggravated by wrist flexion and pronation. I tend to do fewer tests with golfer's elbow. For me, it's a much more easy diagnosis to make, but there is a golfer's elbow test where you pronate and you flex the wrist and the forearm at the same time. And a positive result is when you get pain over the attachment of the wrist flexor muscles on the medial aspect of the elbow. There are a number of significant differential diagnoses you should always consider when you're looking at someone with a probable epicondylitis. Obviously, things like arthritis and olecranon bursitis, they're usually fairly self-explanatory. 
cervical nerve root entrapment can sometimes occur and radiation of pain from the shoulder or wrist injuries can also happen. Carpal tunnel syndrome is on the list, um, but I haven't seen a case of carpal tunnel presenting with elbow epicondylitis type uh, symptoms for a very long time. I also don't find it necessary to investigate epicondylitis in any great detail. If you're uncertain about the diagnosis, then yes, by all means, do something like inflammatory markers, a CRP. If you want to x-ray the elbow, get an ultrasound or even an MRI, that's fine. And if you think that there is ulnar nerve involvement with a medial epicondylitis, then nerve conduction studies may be indicated. Now, the management of both tennis and golfer's elbow is very similar and simple. So, I'm going to talk about the management of tennis elbow, but essentially we can refer to golfer's elbow as well. So the first thing to do is to modify any activities that the patient says causes or makes their symptoms worse. And you need to do this for several weeks, between four and eight weeks. And that includes avoiding any tasks that involve hand gripping, pinching, twisting and certainly avoid any kind of vibrating handheld tools. Using ice packs or putting heat packs on the epicondylitis can also help and sometimes an orthosis like a forearm strap or a wrist or an elbow brace can be very helpful in some patients although it can be difficult to know which patients are going to be most helped. It's one of those situations where you have to try it and see how much benefit they get. Analgesia is obviously indicated. Paracetamol or even a topical non-steroidal can come in uh, useful here. Uh, and because the apicondylitis is sufficiently close to the surface that you don't need to be using systemic anti-inflammatories to be getting some benefit. If symptoms persist though, then obviously go on to an oral anti-inflammatory. If you've got access to rehabilitation and physiotherapy, then that's an excellent way forward. But one of the things to try and not do is to rush quickly into steroid injections. We do not normally now recommend steroid injections routinely because there's very little evidence with epicondylitis that they give anything more than short-term relief, as well as having all the potential risks that go with steroid injections. If you haven't got any response to that patient, or we see them three to six weeks later after initially seeing them, if they're not getting better, then first of all, consider the diagnosis. Have you actually got the diagnosis right? And if you haven't already referred that patient for a physiotherapist, you should do so. This includes for things like massage and for taping and for ultrasound treatments. It's obviously your call. Um, there are no set guidelines as to when to refer to secondary care. But for me, if I've got a patient who is four to six months down the line and they are not getting better, then I should be starting to think about whether they should be seeing someone in secondary care. Is the diagnosis correct? Um, and especially if they've got significant pain and functional impairment, we need to get them seen. So I hope that's been helpful. And I think it's also important to say that fortunately for us in practice, for most cases of tennis elbow, it is a self-limiting condition. It will almost get better by itself, irrespective of what we do. But the average episode can easily take 
one to two years to resolve, although the majority do resolve within one year. And that applies for both tennis elbow and golfer's elbow. However, up to 10% of people with an epicondylitis don't resolve and do have to go on to secondary care and even for consideration of treatments such as surgery. So I do think that's helpful and I do hope you found that podcast helpful. Do please have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com and we'd be very grateful if you consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. So thank you for listening, and as always, until the next time, goodbye.